match burns roughly eight seconds. A life lasts roughly 80 years. Here one moment and gone the next. If you're smart, you'll use that time wisely. Hello, everyone. Welcome to church today. Uh, we're about to launch a study on what I believe is one of the most difficult books in the entire Bible. How's that for an ominous opener? Uh, difficult because its message doesn't seem to totally square with the rest of the Bible. And, and sometimes what seems to be downright hopelessness in this book. And oddly enough, it's also one of my favorite books of the Bible, uh, just because it's so honest. And so I'm talking about the book of Ecclesiastes. I was going through some of my old college notes from my class on this book, and in the margins of my notes, as I was wont to do, uh, they were all handwritten, of course, in those days, I'd written funny in-class quotes from my favorite Old Testament professor, Dr. Paul House. Here are a couple of his quotes. He would say things like, let me paraphrase Ecclesiastes for you. Go have a big monument built for yourself and then have birds fly over and poop on it. He also said, here's the structure of Ecclesiastes. Chapters 1 through 6, all is vanity. Chapters 7 through 12, death is better. The end. He had one more good one. He said, thank God this isn't the only book in the Bible. Another scholar, Phil Riken, calls Ecclesiastes the only book of the Bible written on a Monday morning. And so what's all the fuss about? Why is it so tough? Well, for starters... It's a difficult book to translate and interpret. The language is unusual. There are words and phrases that aren't used anywhere else in the scriptures. There, there are even some words that aren't found anywhere else in ancient literature. But even more than that, it's difficult, as I said, to reconcile with the broader themes of the Bible. There are moments in which that the writer of Ecclesiastes appears to be plumbing some pretty deep, dark depths of despair, and he presents a pretty dark view of the world in the process. If the Bible were a party, Ecclesiastes would be the party pooper. He's asking questions like, you know, what's the point of living life? What's the point of continuing to show up to work, to pour yourself out uh, on this hard life? What's the point of relationships? What's the point of trying to do good? What is the point? And again, I appreciate the honesty. And at first glance, the message of this wisdom book seems to lead to hopelessness, but in fact, the author points us to the hope of life found in one God alone, one name alone, eventually one Savior alone. And so for the next six weeks, Pastor Sarah and I are going to teach through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. And as I do at the beginning of every series, I'm going to ask you to do something, to, to commit to all six weeks of this series. Make this a priority in your life. I'm just convinced that you will never regret growing your soul and committing to a deeper understanding of the Bible. Even if you have some travel coming up or out of town, summer dates, whatever, we've got lots of ways for you to connect. Online, on TV, on Facebook and YouTube, whoisgrace.com, our online archives. You can come back after the fact. But especially with Ecclesiastes, you're gonna wanna see how each week builds on the next and how this book leads from despair to hope. So I wanna start today with an overall look at an introduction to Ecclesiastes. Then we'll tackle chapter one, at least the first part today as well. But I want you to see three things about the book as we start. First is Ecclesiastes as wisdom literature. So there's a biblical genre in the Old Testament called wisdom literature. The books that are traditionally included in this genre are Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And all of these books are wrestling with a particular set of questions centering around things like, how, how should I live in the world? What's the good life look like? If I try to live wisely, what should I expect? How will God respond if I try to do the right thing? 
And so when you read the wisdom books, they're a mixture of wise sayings and philosophical treaties and, and poetry. And it's almost like you've stepped out of the main storyline that unifies the, the Hebrew Bible, like the journey of the Jewish people and the lands and the covenants and the blessings. And instead you tune into these practical lessons for everyday life in the form of these little shots of wisdom. So, so these are very human books. Proverbs is talking about how you find success in the world, no matter where you fall in society. It's kind of like a field guide for success and money and relationships. The Psalms are a collection of poems written by the sometimes schizophrenic king, David, and, and, and others. But in one moment, it seems like David is saying, oh Lord, you're so good and you're so close to me. In the next sentence, he's like, why did you abandon me forever? Anybody resonate with that? I resonate with that. And then you'll find him talking to himself. He's saying things like, you know, why are you so downcast, my soul? You know, put your hope in God. He, he knows what's right in his head, but his heart won't join him there. And then you have the Song of Solomon, a graphic and erotic book. Young Hebrew boys were forbidden to read it until they got to a certain age. I've always thought it was ironic that the, the initials of Song of Solomon are SOS. <laughs> and then there's Job. Job, the, the, the story we all relate to it. Everything is taken away from this dude. And, and then his wife turns on him, and then he's comforted with, with terrible advice from his crappy friends. So, so there are some incredible truths and lessons to be gleaned from these real-life wisdom books of the Bible. Christopher Wright says it this way. He says, The most challenging difference between the wisdom writings and the rest of the Old Testament arises when wisdom authors express doubts about or question the validity of some of the mainline affirmations of other parts of the Bible. And yet this is precisely the purpose of this material in the canon of scripture, to compel us toward an honest faith that's willing to acknowledge the presence of doubts we cannot dismiss and questions we can't always fully answer given our human limitations. When it comes to Ecclesiastes specifically, some scholars believe that, that, that this book was actually a departure from even the, the wisdom literature and maybe even a necessary correction to the other wisdom literature. It's in the Bible almost like a counterbalance to books like Proverbs or Song of Solomon, which seem to almost guarantee that when you do things right, pro positive outcomes will follow. In fact, the tone of most of the book of Ecclesiastes could be cate categorized as sarcasm. Maybe that's why I like it so much. But I want you to look now at the structure and authorship of Ecclesiastes. So in spite of what my Old Testament prof said, at face value, there's a pretty simple structure to the book. It's divided into three parts. It begins with a short prologue and the first 11 verses, introducing some of the themes of the book. And then the second part is a very long speech or monologue that goes from the end of chapter one all the way to chapter 12. And then the third part is a brief epilogue in chapter 12. And so the bulk of the book is that speech in the middle section, made up primarily of autobiographical, sometimes contradictory reflections on the meaning of life. Now, traditionally, the authorship has been attributed to an old and reflective King Solomon, looking back over his life. And without getting into all the gory details, there's enough evidence in the book that the author was, was probably not Solomon himself. So verse one reads like this. It says, the words of the preacher the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, this is this, the title, the preacher, is this Hebrew word, kohilet. We'll call him Q. Q seems to associate himself with Solomon or to write even from Solomon's perspective, though it wasn't actually probably Solomon writing. It's a common literary technique from the day called royal fiction. And so when you hear Sarah and I talking about Q, we're talking about the author of Ecclesiastes writing from the perspective of King Solomon. Finally, here's why I'm excited that we're studying Ecclesiastes. 
I don't know if you've noticed, but our world is still desperate for answers to life's fundamental questions. Like what's life about? Why is life so unjust? Why does work have to be so toilsome? How can I be happy when the world seems pointless? The, the, the spirit of our age recommends searching for meaning both inward, like create your own meaning in life, and outward, like meaning will hopefully come from advancing in your career or accumulating possessions or pleasurable experiences. I love that Ecclesiastes explores the depths of all of these sources of meaning and in the end finds them wanting. He gets straight to the heart of the issue. He discovers that this life will never fully satisfy your deepest longings. Q is asking all these questions. He's saying, you know, if fame and fortune aren't enough, then what is? If money and fame aren't enough, then what is? If self-seeking pleasure isn't enough, then what is? If pursuing wisdom isn't enough, then what is? If our work isn't enough, then what is? And spoiler alert, Q ultimately comes to the conclusion that without God, all is futile. But with him, everything has incalculable value. Now, if you're looking for earthly answers to your earthly problems, you're not going to find them there. People who are, are having a difficult time at life often just say things like, you know, if I just had more money, if I just had more power or privilege, if I had more friends or the negative, like if my parents hadn't been so unfit to raise me or if I had been raised in a different place or if I could have just gotten this next thing. And so people create in their minds this like this better existence that always exists somewhere out there over the rainbow. Like if only this and if only that. The problem with that kind of thinking is Ecclesiastes. He comes to the end and he's like, the answers aren't in this life. And yet Ecclesiastes strangely comforts us by ultimately pointing us to the fulfillment of all things in Jesus, reminding us that Christ understands life's frustrations better than we do. And because of that, he can provide the appropriate remedy. You see, everything that Q explored, Jesus was also tempted by, but resisted. And he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sin. And he rose from the dead as evidence to his authority over this broken creation and as the first fruits of a greater redemption for his children and the new creation. So yes, this world is difficult. It's a difficult place to live, but we won't always live here. Christ will set us free to enjoy him and his glory forever. And until that day, let's avoid frustration by making Augustine's prayer our own. He said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. It's brutally honest, yet it ultimately points us to hope in God through Christ. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. Turn to Ecclesiastes 1, if you will, in the Old Testament. And the book starts with an acknowledgement of the weariness that comes with this life. In fact, that's the title of my message today. Owning our weariness. I think is a theme that we can all relate to. As we live under the shadow of these last several years, and as the rise of, of mental health issues in our country is expanding, and the jobs uh, are reshuffling, and there's financial uncertainty, I think we can all relate to the weariness of this world. And so here's my big idea for today. Own your weariness and turn it into prayer. We already read verse 1, and so let's start with verse 2. He says, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, now there's a, a cheery start to our series. He's saying it's all worthless. Uh, Q, Q would have fit right in during the grunge phase of music back in the early 80s. He, he could have written lyrics for Nirvana or Alice in Chains and where every song was this angst-filled commentary on the meaninglessness of life. It's all meaningless, says Q. 
I want you to see three biggies from Ecclesiastes 1 today, okay? The first is the big mystery. And here's what he concludes. Life is vapor. You know, a lot of the, the wisdom books in the Bible rely on ancient truths to, to make sense of the world. And one of the things that makes Ecclesiastes different is that the teacher is, is basing his wisdom on personal experimentation. There's no other biblical book like it. When, when you have this first person account telling you about a lifetime's worth of experiments, so in the coming chapters, you're gonna hear him say like, I tried this and, and I went and I learned about this and I messed around with that. And in this season of my life, I tried this approach. And remember, this is being written from Solomon's perspective. And here's the deal about Solomon. Solomon was killing it. Like he had more wealth, he had more fame, he had more privilege, he had more education than you and I will ever have. He was the wisest person in the world. He was the richest person in the world. He was the most famous person in the world. He had his own hype house and sway house and cloud house or whatever these houses are. He, he was getting all the sex he could ever want from all the women you could ever imagine. And he comes out of the gates here in verse two of chapter one and he says, and here's what I concluded. It's worthless. He uses a word that you're going to see repeated again and again through the book. He says, I determined that it was havel. Our translation says vanity. The NIV says meaningless. A most literal translation might be smoke or vapor, that it's all a vapor. It's a breath or a breeze. I want you to get this picture in your mind. Like a puff of smoke comes up in front of you from a pipe or a cigar. Or if you blow out the candles on a birthday cake and that smoke rises and it looks like something. It looks like a puffy white cloud that you can see it and you can smell it and you can point at it. But it has this unique quality that when you reach out your hands to grab a hold of it, there's nothing there. It's transient, it's temporary, it vanishes quickly. And he's saying, life is like that. Life is a vapor. And with this word, Havel, Q is referring us to the fragile, fleeting nature of existence. Life is brief. Our time here is short. Everything you try to grab a hold of seems to vanish in your hands like a vapor. This reality should cause us to, to seize the moment, to live well in this lifetime before God. And at the same time, it should lead us to be suspicious of any kind of long-term promise of benefit and grasping after any kind of earthly gain during our time here. We must understand the fragility and brevity of life. This notion is supported by other wisdom literature. Psalm 103.15 says, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. Or Psalm 90.10, The years of our life are 70 or even by reason of strength 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble and they are soon gone and we fly away. Or one of my favorites, they put this one on a coffee mug. Job 14.1, man who is born of a woman is few of days and full of trouble. <laughs> so, so you'll hear older people saying all the time, like time flies, or they'll say like, I blinked one day and before I knew it, I'm standing here in an old person's body. Or I, I tell young parents all the time, like you won't believe how soon you're gonna be dropping those little kids off at college. Like we're born and we live and we die and it all happens so, so quickly. Some of you have experienced loss recently. The shortness of life is, is a deep and personal reality for you right now. Because every time we lose someone close to us, the brevity of life takes center stage. There's a sense that, 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 that their days were too short, that there was more life for them left to live. The fact that we have this universal reaction to death suggests that maybe this longing in us for more, that there should be more days, that it points us to the fact that we were created for another world. We were created for eternity. 
but I digress. So the first biggie that we encounter in chapter one is the big mystery, that life is a vapor. Here's the second, it's a big question. The question is, what is my net gain? The question comes here in verse three, when the teacher asks, what does a man gain for all his toil under the sun? This is the question really that frames the whole book. He's saying gain, this word gain is benefit. It's a term, yitran, which means it's a business term actually for profit. He's asking the big question, what does life profit me? Look at verse three, he says, what does it gain? Uh, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around the sun to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run into the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. Q here is focusing our attention on this threefold pattern on the earth, the activities of the sun and the wind and the water. The sun chases its tail around the sky. The wind goes into the, goes to the south and then comes back around again to the north and the streams flow into the sea and the water evaporates and then the streams flow into the sea again and it never fills up and so is the world and so it always will be. This experience of constant motion without any noticeable progress can be summed up in one word wearisome. And he says, just like nature is on this meaningless cycle, so is my life. And so we come back to this question of verse three that sets up this section in a way that, that really sets up the whole book of Ecclesiastes. He says, what does man gain by all the toil? And the implied answer is nothing. We gain nothing. Remember, he's rooting around at this business term that means net profit. And so he asks, what's my net profit at the end of my life? A net profit is the money that remains after all the operating expenses and all the interest and all the taxes, after all that has been deducted from the total revenue. What's left for me to enjoy? What have I gained? What is the surplus? What's the net profit? What will count as the lasting monument for all this effort that I'm putting into this life? All the hours that I'm working, all the relationships I'm investing in. And his first cursory conclusion is that, that for all of our toil and work, we die and we leave this place unchanged. Like we die and the sun is gonna still come up and go down and the rivers will still rush into the seas. No matter if you wake up at 5 a.m. or if you sleep till noon, my life will come and go. If I leave children on this earth to carry on my legacy, they themselves are part of the generations that will come and go. And all they will leave behind is a world carrying on just as it was before our entire clan was even here. Nothing we do will change this pattern that we labor and toil and, and then we die and the earth keeps on spinning. Aren't you glad you came to church today? Now, let, let me just interject here. Pastor Sarah and I have been debating for months uh, about how we're gonna handle this series because this book is so tough. Like, you can hear it already. And I've been an advocate for just letting Ecclesiastes stand alone. It is what it is. So let's just wallow in the misery and the dirge and the depression of this angsty book. And because she's a better person than me, Sarah has been reminding me that we have a full council of scripture now, that, that we know the ending now, that we have the revelation of Jesus now that Q wasn't privy to at that time. So thankfully for all of you, Sarah won the negotiation and we will be bringing doses of hope throughout the series while still feeling the full weight of realism, maybe even pessimism of this book. So this will come around in the end, I promise. But before that, I want to tell you about one more biggie. The big mystery is that life is a vapor. The big question is, what is my net, net gain? And here's the third. 
uh, biggie, and it's not hopeful yet. It's the big realization that I'm on a hamster wheel. In verse 8, we're introduced to today's keyword, weariness. Look what he says. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. Everything is full of weariness. Monday morning, the alarm goes off, you wake up, you get dressed, you get coffee, you sit in traffic, you get to your workstation, you work until lunch, you eat something, you get back to work until five or six when you leave work, maybe you go to the gym, probably not. You just go home, you eat dinner, you watch Netflix, you go to bed. What are you gonna do Tuesday? Same thing, same coffee, same traffic, same work, same Netflix, same bed. Life is a treadmill. It's a pattern that repeats over and over again. When all is said and done, we're all the sweaty guy on the treadmill. He ran and ran, and and he never got anywhere. It's a hamster wheel. It's the circular nature of life. And Q is saying here, we have lived our lives and we found our lives to be boring. No matter how hard you work, there's always laundry. No matter how much you do it, you have to do it again. I mowed the lawn again this week. I shaved again this morning. I got my hair cut again this month. We paid the bills again this month. It's a hamster wheel. And just in case there was any glimmer of hope, Q points out in verse 10 that there are people who pretend that they're not in this rut. There are people who pretend that their life isn't meaningless and they're not stuck in a circular rut of boredom. He said, there are those who say, see, this is new. Maybe you got a new trinket. Maybe you got a new shiny thing, a new relationship, a new thrill. And he says, listen, it might be a new color or a new shape or a new size, but it's not new. In the end, there's nothing new. So-called new things are a deceptive part of the hamster wheel, says Q. Yeah, that new gadget, those new clothes, the new boat, the new car, they bring a weird excitement for just a second. That new phone, that new video game makes you feel emotionally better for just a moment and then quickly that feeling is gone and that thing becomes old and you're longing again for the next new thing. And Q says, give me a break. There's nothing new. You deceive yourselves. There's always this alpha dude who's gonna go, listen, I'm, I'm gonna be such a phenomenal business leader. I'm gonna be an influencer. I'm gonna make my mark. I'm gonna take the world by storm. I'm gonna leave a legacy. And Q comes along in verse 11. And he's like, no, bro, you're gonna die and nobody's gonna remember you. <laughs> Let's do a depressing little quiz, okay? Do any of you know your great, great, great grandfather's name? Do you know what he did? Do you know the influence that he had during his time on earth? No, you probably don't. What does it show us? You're going to be born. You're going to live your life. You're going to die. And no one's going to remember you, not even your family. So, so we spend our whole lives pretending that, that we can escape the constraints of our humanity. You pretend that if you get a promotion or you get a, a, a raise or, or you, you, you bring up great kids, that you're going to leave a lasting legacy. And you pretend that if you move into that new house, you're going to be happy. And you pretend that, that if you end that relationship or if you start that new one, that you're not going to feel trapped anymore. And you pretend that if you were married or maybe if you weren't married anymore, that you'd finally be content. You pretend that if you get through this week's pile of laundry and diapers and school projects, that next week will be quieter. You pretend that you can 
finally arrive and exist in a world free from weariness. And Q is like, no, you aren't in control. None of these things will satisfy and weariness is part of the deal. And listen, these three biggies, they come with legitimate longings in us. We long for a lasting impact in the world when our lives are still very short. We long for a payoff in a world where we will leave no different than we found it. We long for change in a world of permanent repetition. And the result of those legitimate longings not being fulfilled in this lifetime is plain old, simple weariness. Now listen, if this message today depresses you, <laughs> please hang in there. Keep, keep going along with us. Keep reading through Ecclesiastes with us because there's still a lot to learn. But as David Gibson said so perfectly, he said, if chapter one of Ecclesiastes cracks a mischievous smile on your face, you are halfway to happiness because Q is gonna show us what we should and should not expect out of this life. He's not just saying that there's no gain after we've chased the wind. He will insist that there's no need for the chase in the first place. There's no gain to be had under the sun and that's precisely the point. See, Ecclesiastes is a meditation on what it means to be alive in a, in a world that God made and called good, yet which also has gone so, so very wrong, often in catastrophic ways. But it's not just this world under the sun that we have to look forward to. You see, the world is our imperfect, temporary home, but we were created for more. We were made to be with God. Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. There's our theme, weariness. Come to me, all you who are weary. See, the answer to our weariness is the presence of God himself. He says, come to me, come to him, be with him. And we won't find that fully on this earth in this lifetime under this sun. It's kind of like staying at someone else's house for a few weeks. Have you ever done that? Been a guest in someone's home for a long period of time and it's nice of them to host you and all, but you can never really relax in someone else's home. Like even if their hospitality is amazing, at some level you just feel like an annoying guest. Should I be washing the dishes? Like I wish I knew where the cereal was. I, I, I'd love to watch something at nine o'clock tonight, but that's not what they do. Or should I sit out here and chat? Or do they like to be alone in the evening? And when do I go to bed and lay on that pillow that's not quite right? right? It's just not home. German philosopher Martin Heidegger said, said this way. He said, we all live with this good German word, Unheimlichkeit, which means homesickness. You see, what Q is tapping into here is at the deepest level, we're homesick. We'll never be fully at home in this world. The pillow will always be lumpy and we can't find the milk in this world. And if we try to make our home fully here, we will always find ourselves to be weary. We know there's more. There's got to be more. We were made for more. You know, I'm always disturbed by the scene in The Lion King where Mufasa is explaining the circle of life to Simba. They're talking about how Simba will one day be the king of the jungle and he explains the circle of life and in his deep James Earl Jones voice, he says something like, everything you see exists together in this delicate, I'm not gonna do it, in this delicate balance and you have to respect all creatures. He says, even the antelope and Simba asks an obvious question. He says, father, but don't we eat the antelopes? And yes, we do, Simba says, but then we die and we become the grass, and then the grass grows, and then the antelopes eat us. Isn't that great? Don't you wanna sing about it? The circle of life, right? And I'm always left when they break into song, like, no, 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 that's not great. 
Uh, like, I, I don't want to sing. I don't, I don't want to be part of a plan where my ultimate destiny is fertilizer for food for the next guy. Like, we should rage against death. Death is a curse. It's an enemy. We weren't made for that to be the end of the story. And a world where we become fertilizer in the end is not a place where we can rest. We can't restrict ourselves to longing only for things that are part of this hamster wheel. And Jesus comes back to this truth in his teaching when he says, be wary, be wary of piling up treasures on earth. You were made for much, much more. Invest everything in the next life. Store up treasures in heaven because you were made for another place where you will be finally and fully in his presence. And that is the only answer for your weariness. You know, I'd like to go back to verse two for a minute and just make a quick connection for you. In Ecclesiastes 1-2, Q says that everything is vanity. This word vanity is actually carried over into the New Testament in a passage that you may have heard before. It's in Romans chapter 8. Paul says that creation was subjected to what he calls futility. Vanity and futility are parallel words in the Septuagint. The passage goes on to say that part of what it means for creation to be subjected to futility is that creation is groaning. But it's not a hopeless groaning. It's groaning in anticipation of its redemption. But he did not leave it without hope. The passage goes on to say that it's not just creation. He says, but we ourselves groan inwardly. It's also not a hopeless groaning. He said, we groan inwardly as we await our adoption and and the redemption of our bodies. I love the honesty of the Bible. And I want this connection between Ecclesiastes 1-2 and Romans 8 to inform a two-part next step today. The first is, own your weariness. Will you just ask yourself, like, where is there groaning in my life? Where is there loss and grief? What, What has been taken from you? Where is there a longing that's not being satisfied? What are you trying to grab onto that feels like vapor? Where is life not paying off for you? Where does it feel like you're just on a hamster wheel spinning around the same stuff over and over again? Will you just own your weariness today? It's okay. You're you're a human being. You're, You're an alien, an exile in this world. It was never meant to provide ultimate rest. But here's the second part. After Romans 8 reminds us that we, are, we too are groaning because of the futility of this life, it says this. He says, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Here's part two. Will you turn your weariness into prayer? That seems to be the guidance of this passage. It doesn't have to be a fancy prayer. It doesn't have to be with fancy words. This passage promises that the Spirit of God is gonna be like a translator for you. That that if you get your words all turned around and if you get your words muddled up, that he's gonna intercede for you in a way that God will understand. But you still need to try. You, You still need to own your weariness and turn it into prayer to make that effort in prayer to take your groaning and your pretending and your striving and your chasing after the wind and offer it to God because he's the only place where you will find rest in this lifetime. And so I wanna provide some space right now for you to turn your weariness into prayer. I love you guys.